How many of you have a circumstance or a season in your life, maybe you were headed in a direction, maybe it was a season where you just desperately needed something from God. Um, Maybe you needed some direction in your life and then something happened. Something happened. And you know that you know that you know that that was completely a God thing, that you experienced the presence of God. Raise your hand if that's you. Raise them up high and keep them up for a second just because um, we did this at the other services. And there's, there's a lot of people in the room. So if you go around, um, I'd say well over half of the hands in the room went up just now, that you've had an experience where you know that you know that you know that you experienced the presence of God in a very real way. Way I've had um, multiple experiences like this at different points in my life that were really impactful. So lots of us say this, and so let me just ask you, how is that? I don't know, maybe you're just here, you're checking out God, Church, and the Bible. If that's you, we are so glad that you're here. Maybe you're like, well, okay, I might expect that because I'm in church. Of course, everybody's going to say that. I guess it's possible that we all just read God into circumstantial evidence. Maybe that's a possibility, right? Or let me suggest, like I believe, maybe it's actually because we've, we've all had a common experience with a, God, with a God who is actually alive and active and present and moving in our lives. Um, I've got some crazy stories. I've told some of them before about God, like breaking cars down at, uh, to keep me from going places. Uh, I won't tell that this time. But I want to tell you a, a, a story from my dad, and I've told it before but it's had such an impact on me. It's one of those I like to tell regularly. And uh, my, my dad was a college professor. He and my mom were married before I was born. They were up in Alaska, Sitka, Alaska. And uh, they were, he was teaching college, and there was another Christian professor there too, and they were, they were friends. And my dad had recently, fairly recently, become a Christian a number of years, just a few years before this. But he was praying, and he was seeking the Lord one night. And and. This is in the 70s. And as he's praying, he saw a big screen TV in his mind. Now, this is long before the days of, you know, 80-inch OLED TVs, although I have used this story to try to convince my wife to let me buy one. So he saw this, like, giant screen TV with the clear words on it that said, pray for Robert. Pray for Robert. Robert was one of his students. He was a First Nations student from from uh, Alaska, from that area, and he didn't know what was going on, but he knew, like, he saw that in his mind, and so he just started praying for Robert. And a couple days later, he was having a conversation with another Christian professor on campus, and they were talking, he found out this other professor saw the same thing, except for the words on the screen that he saw were, were different, and they said, go see Robert. And so this professor, my dad's friend, got up, and he went down to the dorm room and knocked on Robert's door. And Robert was in his dorm room. He had unhooked the gas heater and had the gas line open into his room, and he was preparing to light a match. And that professor was able to, to be with him and like help him in that moment and not only saved his life, but very likely the lives of, of many others in that dorm room as well. Now let me ask you, How do you explain that? How do you explain that? There's really, like, other than me going, Dad, you're crazy, and so is this other guy. (laughs) I can't think of a way 
to explain that other than the fact that there's a God who is alive and active and moving in this world by his power, by the Holy Spirit. Now, to get us where we're going here, um, let me remind you where we're at. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 for just a minute and then in Acts chapter 2 here. But I, I don't know if you ever stopped and thought about this, but the fact that we're here 2,000 years after an obscure rabbi from the Middle East walked the planet and was murdered by the people he, he, he was ministering to, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about how unlikely it is that you're here celebrating him or in a, in a service that's worshiping him 2,000 years later. What's amazing is after the resurrection of Jesus, during the first three centuries, the faith in Jesus spread from being this, this tiny, what was seen as like a little knockoff or a sect of the Jewish faith. In fact, we weren't originally called Christians. We were originally called the way. And scholars think that's because Jesus said so frequently, I am the way, the truth, and the life that this movement, the early movement of Jesus, became known as the way. But it grew as this movement that followed this obscure rabbi to within 31 years spreading across much of the Roman Empire in spite of persecution. In fact, there's a, there's a scholar that, I, uh, that I've read, and here's what he said. He said, on the basis of statistics alone, the Christian faith is the most successful phenomenon in all of history, but during its early years, it was fragile, fragmented, tortured, and seemingly doomed by a hostile Roman Empire. So I know you come to church, you don't really think about this stuff every week, right? You're just going about your week. But the truth is, the fact that you're even here today, it, like really smart people, sociologists have studied it, and they've come up with some theories, but as you read them, you're like, I don't really think that explains it. Today, two plus billion people around the world worship Jesus, claim the name of Jesus. There's never been another religion, philosophy, or movement that's so vast. Every time you open a calendar, you're reminded that this, this event split history in two. How did that happen? It's truly remarkable. There's some explanations and you know, there's some other major faiths that you can kind of see with politics and stuff, how, how in war and stuff, how it spread early. But with all the persecution of Christianity in the first three centuries, it truly is remarkable that it even survived. And last, two things. Number one, this group of men who had seen their friend and their savior crucified and dead and buried this group of men then saw him and encountered him alive, which is exactly what they claim as his witnesses. In fact, they, went, they would go on, these early group of guys, these 11, would go on to spread this message. They would speak in front of all these people, the very people that, that murdered Jesus, who they were scared of just a few weeks before, and they would confront him. They would say, you crucified him. And when they, when they arrested him, when they beat them, when they told them to shut up and quit talking about Jesus, they said, we're, we're, we either have to obey God or you. Who should we obey? We're going to obey God. And, and 11 of the 12 went on to die martyrs' deaths for Jesus because they would not let go of the claim that they saw the risen Jesus, that they experienced Jesus alive. You know, liars don't make good martyrs. There's something going on there. And so it was the fact that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, but then it, was, it went beyond that. It was the power of God working in their very midst. 
And when you go back and you look at the early church, you cannot help but discover that God, the presence of God, was doing something so powerful in their midst that it catapulted this early movement all around the world. And that brings us to Acts, Acts chapter 1. We're going to pick up with a few verses um, that we actually read last week, but we're going to, I want to dive into a few more things on them, and then we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And here's what it says. This is after the resurrection, before Jesus ascended back to heaven. It says this, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read passages like this in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, um, what you have to recognize is when it came to phrases like this, people reading this in the first century have some context and expectation based on these phrases. And so you hear this idea about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, and this meant something to them. And that's because hundreds of years before Jesus walked the planet, prophets of God had prophesied a time coming when the activity and the presence of the Spirit will be poured out on people. And they had prophecies about this, and so they had things in their mind. I want to read a couple of those to you here uh, quickly this morning, and I'm just going to read them quickly. It's not on the screen, but one of those is found in uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is a, a passage that talks about a new covenant. This is what we celebrate every month when we take communion together. This is um, what your New Testament is, the new covenant. And here's what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I have made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people Uh, With the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or, or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the passage known very well um, hundreds of years before Jesus came as the giving of the new covenant. This is when Jesus took the bread that he said represented his body and the cup at the Last Supper that represented his blood. He said, this, is, this cup is, in, is the new covenant of my blood poured out for you. He says, this day is here. This day is here. So they would have had that passage in their minds around this whole time. And then a couple others like him. One of those is in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 16. It says this, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations, will bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images. They're talking about idolatry and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart. And listen, and put a new spirit in them. And I'll remove from them their heart of stone. This ties into that new covenant. And give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people. I will be their God. So that's a passage in Ezekiel. And then one more like it that draws from the same idea that talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit 
in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24. And here's what that says. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you back from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. These are passages written, given by God to prophets, literally hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. And these were things that they had been hearing and and learning about from the time they were little kids. They were steeped in these scriptures. And so what happened right before Jesus appears on the scene is there was a great prophet. His name is John the, yeah, you've heard of him. And he arrived on the scene, um, and he had a message, and his message was this, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, I'm going to baptize you in water, and that was a symbol of that repentance, which is turning away from sin, making your heart right. Basically, John's message, prepare your heart to be ready for the new thing that God is doing. It's about ready to happen. The kingdom of God, it's at end. The time the prophets prophesied about, it's coming. Get ready. Make your heart right so you won't miss what God's doing on this earth. And that's what John came. That's the message that he gave. And he was baptizing people in water as a symbol of what was about ready to happen, a symbol of that repentance. And he said, but one comes who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied the coming of Jesus. And then he identifies Jesus as, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But as John prophesied this, here's the amazing part about this and what was so significant about these scriptures and their anticipation of what would happen. See, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and he would rest on a few specific types of people at specific times. People like judges or prophets or kings or people that were supposed to build the tabernacle to be gifted for that. But it was temporary and it was very limited in who experienced this. But the prophets prophesied, and Jesus talked about a time coming when all, when the Spirit would come and would rest on all, when now the Holy Spirit would actually indwell all believers in Jesus. And this was a very significant thing they were waiting for. And so it's with all those passages in mind that, that would come to their minds as they begin to hear this, after they, they asked Jesus about them, or after Jesus made that statement, he went on, he said this, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, see, they still don't get exactly what Jesus is saying. They still don't get the part where Jesus says, my kingdom is not yet of this world. They don't quite get it yet because they have in mind what they missed was the first and the second coming of Jesus and the time in between. And so they have the idea from all these prophetic passages that this is all happening at the exact same moment. But this is something that is written that Jesus says he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority. He doesn't answer their question, but then he goes on to redirect their attention. He said, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So he says, I, I have a task for you. It's different than what you think. It looks a little different. And what you see beginning to unfold in the book of Acts is something that, that smart people, um, I think a, a, a scholar named um, George Ladd um, came up with this term, but it was the already and the not yet. And here's the big idea, is Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist first, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says, the kingdom of, if I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he comes inaugurating the kingdom of God in their midst. The kingdom of God has arrived, it's here, and yet it looks different because it's here, it's breaking in, but it's not going to come in fullness and completion until Jesus returns. That's what we call the already and the not yet. That means, because uh, a lot of these prophecies that they would have thought of in the coming of the Holy Spirit involve things like the land kind of returning to an Eden, like a state of the Garden of Eden and sin and sickness and wiping every tear from our eyes and, and disease being eradicated. A return to that way that God originally intended it. Um, a new heavens, a new earth, things like that. That's what's in their head. That's what they're thinking, and they're thinking all right now. And Jesus says, no, it's different than you think. What is he, how does he describe the kingdom of God? It's going to be like a mustard seed. It's like the tiniest little seed, like, kind of like a group of 12 little guys in, in, in the Middle East. <laughs> and it's going to be planted in the ground. And then before you know it, it's going to grow, and it's going to grow and grow. And he says it's going to get so large that there's going to be birds from all over that are going to come and rest in it. What's that symbolizing in their culture? They had to understand. The nations are going to come and find refuge. And he says that's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. The kingdom of God is going to be like a leaven where you mix it into the dough, and it seems like nothing's happening, but before you know it, it leavens the whole loaf of bread. It's going to spread, and people are going to become part of this thing all over. And yet there's going to be a time when that comes in fullness that's not coming in fullness right at first. So it's the same thing. Like you receive the, the Holy Spirit, but you're not completely transformed and perfect yet, are you? Anybody? Or is it just me that's not perfect in the room? There's an ongoing process of sanctification, a big, big churchy word um, that means transformation in your life, that God is taking care of some things, right? Some of you, you, got, you had a very dramatic moment when you were saved, and things like that you struggled with for years were just gone. And others, you, you, it wasn't quite so dramatic, and there's things that you still you struggle with and you struggle with. And there's a process of sanctification and transformation that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It's the already and the not yet nature of the kingdom of God, of the work of the Holy Spirit here and now. But here's what we see. When God breaks in, when he does some amazing things, when somebody gets healed, it's the breaking in of the not yet to the now. It's, it's experiencing a little bit of heaven and perfection, a little bit of God's kingdom and fullness now. And he breaks in with that. And so... That brings us to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And, and the disciples uh, were told the 12, and then uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, and a bunch of other disciples. There's about 125 total. They're in the upper room. They're waiting on God because Jesus said, go to Jerusalem. Don't leave. Wait, because you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit that's going to allow you to then be my witnesses. See, I've given you a task to do. This is the point. Don't worry about figuring out all the details. Focus on the task. I'm going to give you the power to accomplish that. 
And that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. It says this. When the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost, we get that word. It's tied to 50. Um, it comes because it's 50 days after Passover. It's the feast, the Jewish feast called Shavuot. Now, Shavuot commemorated the time where the Israelites were on Mount Sinai and the law was given on Mount Sinai. So our, our Old Testament or Old Covenant, um, the, uh, the, the Hebrew scriptures contained the law of God in the first five books of the Bible that were given that the people struggled and struggled to keep. So now the, there's a new covenant coming. This is so powerful. And why on Pentecost? Why did, why did the Holy Spirit choose this Jewish feast day? Because it was, Paul talks about a new law, the law of the Spirit. Did you notice all that in those Old Testament passages I read to you, those prophecies? That I'll give you a new, new heart. I'll write my law in your heart. That's the idea that as you listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit and as you draw near and walk with him, you will automatically live a life that pleases God. It's called the law of the Spirit. You see it work itself out. It's the fact that it's the Spirit that produces fruit in you like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Good things. That's what they're talking about. And so on that day, when they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. <laughs> giant wind comes through. And it says, then they, see, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Let me ask you guys a question. Um, when in all of Scripture do you see fire. I'll give you a hint. Desert. A pillar. They're being led by a pillar. It's the dramatic representation of the presence of God in their midst. Well, now you have little re representations of the presence of God in the form of, of a pillar of fire, little tongues of fire, but they're not just like one in their midst. It's on every believer in the room. They see something, they experience something, they hear something. There's a tangible sense that God is in their midst, a sound of a rushing wind. And here's what happened. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they began to speak in other tongues. And we'll talk about this a little more today and then a little more in, in uh, when we talk about gifts a little later in the series um, about some of this. But here's, here's the thing I want you to notice here. You see this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit a lot in the New Testament. A little bit later, you're going to see it where Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit again, and he gets up and he preaches a bold sermon. He calls out the very guys that he cowered in front of a while ago. Now, he actually cowered in front of a middle school girl. Uh, so he's going to stand in front of the very religious leaders that condemned Jesus, and he's going to say, you crucified him, and he's going to call him out, and he's going to say, we're going to obey God, not man. Incredible boldness as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives him the ability to do what God's calling him to do in that moment. It's amazing. We see the believers coming together and praying, and they're praying for boldness after, after this time with Peter, and it says the house shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They're in prayer together. You see Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking out the words that God gave him to speak. You see um, Paul telling us in Ephesians to be being filled with the Holy Spirit to the believers. That's the language in the Greek. Like there's an ongoing thing. Now let me just stop and, and 
let me pause and acknowledge that whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes people come from different places and different experiences and different backgrounds and even different understandings of Scripture. And we have a value around here. It's called your lifelong learners. And here's what that means. Um, we, we see some things when it comes to salvation by faith in Jesus alone that are just fundamental, essential elements. But then we understand there's different believers that have a little different interpretation on some things. And so some people who love Jesus with all their heart come to the land on a little different position than I land on, and that's okay. Like maybe there's things like end times theology, uh, predestination, Bible translations, maybe some of the things we're going to talk about in, the, in this series that some people have, have struggled with and maybe land on a different spot. Here's what we know. We're going to spend eternity to, with each other. We should be able to hang out together now and love each other and follow Jesus together and share the gospel together, right? Yeah. The other thing I know is that uh, people smarter than us have been arguing about some of these things for thousands of years. And so I I don't ever, I'm always learning new stuff and tweaking my opinions about things as as I dig into scripture. And I would just encourage you to do the same, to be like a Berean that we see in the, later in the book of Acts, where they, even Paul's preaching himself, the Apostle Paul, they took it and they took it and they searched the scriptures to make sure what he was saying was actually true. And so, you know, people land on different spots than this. But I see this pattern. And let me just illustrate what I see in here this way. As I see this idea... In the, in the scriptures that uh, in John, you see Jesus, he breathes on his disciples. He says, receive the Holy Spirit in the upper room now, earlier, right after the resurrection. And then you see this idea, because I know a lot of people that have never had a dramatic experience with the Holy Spirit and yet love Jesus and serve him. And here's, here's, what, I, here's what I think. Um, People experience this differently. But the best picture I have to illustrate, I think, what's going on here is I think Scripture is pretty clear as you look at Romans, as you read some of the teachings, that it's the Holy Spirit that is the seal of your salvation, that if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you've been saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The seal of your salvation. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. It says uh, those who belong to God have the Holy Spirit in Romans. He's the spirit that allows us to call out Abba, Father. And yet, I see this other thing, and the best way I can describe it is like a, uh, a thermostat. I have a boiler at home, and it's, it heats the house, right? And it can go all summer um, with that pilot light just on, just a little flicker, a little flame. You know, it's coming, it's about September, and then you hit one of those cold mornings, and all of a sudden, that pilot light, the gas flows in, right? Because the thermostat hits, the gas flows in, and it's like, whoomph. And it heats the whole house. And I think, as I study scripture, as I look at some of these texts and wrestle with some of these things of, like, being filled with the Holy Spirit and stuff, I think that's a lot of, like, how it works. And I think there's a lot of people that go through life, and it's like, there's a pilot light, but then there's specific moments in time where God comes and he empowers people for the task he's given them to do. I've seen this. I've experienced that. It's kind of where I, what I see. So, verse 5, it says, Now they were staying, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because 
each one heard their own language being spoken. So they come together, and they'd all heard different languages, and they're like, what in the world is going on? Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Galilee was kind of like up north. You know, it was like the country bumpkins up there. And they're like, wait a minute. These guys all have a Galilee accent. But they're not talking like that. I, I can hear them speaking perfectly in my own language from all these different nations. How is this happening? They're amazed. Now, I have a friend. Uh, his name's Lincoln. And as we were planting the church, he was um, preparing to take his family. They literally had a garage sale, sold everything, and were moving their family over to work on a mercy ship. And uh, this was, uh, it's like a big hospital ship. And they were on, in West Africa, in a nation over there. I believe it was Congo at the time. And he was working on these advanced teams that would prepare for people to come over and do surgeries and all these things. And he had one meeting set up where he had to go and make this connection with this port official in order to allow visas to happen and all this stuff. Well, this guy was resistant. And Lincoln went into this meeting and, uh, and he, he didn't speak French. He only spoke like, you know, picked up a word here or there, but didn't speak French at all. And he went into this meeting and there's this port official with his assistant and he hears this guy in French telling his assistant, basically, all of a sudden, he can understand French, like perfectly. And he hears this guy telling his assistant that whatever these guys ask, we're not going to do it. There's like this, this wall, this stubbornness kind of thing up. And so Lincoln hears that, and he understands it, and he's able then to speak directly into that situation and speak to the guy. He calls him on it, and it ended up being, it made the way, so they got all their visas taken care of, and the whole missions project could continue on. As soon as he walks out of that meeting, he can't understand French anymore. <laughs> it blew his mind. Now, he told me the story. It blew my mind. I'm like, wow, that sounds exactly like what happened here. Maybe a little bit different, but that's the idea, right? That's what he experienced. And so here's why this is so cool. They asked, what is going on? What does this mean? Here, verse 9. And I'm going to read off this list of names because this is important. It's going to be a lot of names, like names, 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 names. So don't let your eyes glaze over. I'm going to do my best to read them off, and then I'm going to tell you why this is so cool. And it'll be a little Bible nerd moment for you. Here's what it says. So all these people in our own native language, and these are the people groups that the scholar Luke records for us that were there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? All these different nations that, that Luke records, 14 different nations that are there, and the question is, what does this mean? What does it mean? What does all this mean is the question they asked. Well, it's really cool because there's something going on here that's behind the scenes. All the way back in Genesis chapter 10, you find this really interesting passage. It's called the Chart of Nations. And it talks about the descendants of Noah and how the Chart of Nations develops, his sons and the nations that come off of that. And let me just say, if you're skeptic in the room, go back and, and look it up. Every single ancient... Culture has a deluge story, okay? 
And I see a lot of, uh, it's pretty amazing as you go back and study this. But what you see is this chart of nations. And then the very next chapter is chapter 11 of Genesis. And there's an incident that happens there called the Tower of Babel. And basically what happens is God had commanded humanity to spread out into all the corners of the earth and populate the earth. And they said, we're going to huddle together. And, and what Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel is, is this famous incident where people raise their fist against God, basically, and saying, we're not going to do what you say, God. We're going to go our own way. They build an ancient ziggurat or, or temple um, to reach to the heavens. It's the glorification of man, of what they can accomplish on their own. And, and God comes down, and he confuses the language. That's why it's called Babel. And ever from that, all from that point in history, you look at Babel, Babylon, it's always like they're like the Klingons in, in the Bible. They're always the bad guys. Because it always represents this like heart of standing up and raising a fist to God. Well, then an event happens. So these nations are dispersed. And, and there's an interesting little uh, scripture at the end of Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy, um, let's see what that was, 32. And here's the basic idea of it is, is God says, um, okay, you nations want to serve gods that aren't really God and go your own way, I'll let you. But I'm going to have a possession, and that's Israel. And they're going to be the route with which redemption comes. That's the heart of it. It's, it's Deuteronomy 32. And what do you see in the very next chapter after the Tower of Babel? What comes after Genesis 11? Genesis 12. Pretty bright. I did that by accident at nine, and they laughed at me. So, <laughs> No, what happens is God speaks to a man, and what was that man's name? Abraham. And says, through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Through you, through your descendants. And so, here's why this is so significant. Because at Pentecost, these nations, this long list that Luke lists off, these are from the table of nations. Here's the heart of this. This is God saying, I am reversing the curse at Babylon. What was confused is now coming together because in this new time, this new day, I am going after the nations. I'm going to bring them back to me. They're going to be my inheritance. I'm going to invite everyone in to the family of God. This is the mission. This is the heart of it. I'm reclaiming those nations that were disinherited. I'm bringing them back, baby. That's why this is so cool. All right, Bible nerd moment over. Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. See, there was a physical manifestation of this, like, intense presence of the Holy Spirit. And some of them were just making fun of them. Like, no, they're just, they're just loaded, Right? Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It might be five o'clock somewhere, but here it's only nine. Anybody know that song? No, three of you. Alan Jackson, Jimmy Buffett. Uh, you should listen to more country music in your life. So, All right, he says that. It's only nine in the morning. No, here's, how, here's the significance. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel hundreds of years before Jesus. 
This is the time coming, he said. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says this is a fulfillment of this prophecy that was given hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so he talks about what's happening there and what will happen in the congregations all around and Jesus followers as, as they um, minister to each other and share under the power of the Holy Spirit and these things that will happen as you read through the rest of the New Testament. You see example after example of this, of the things that will happen. And then you see these, these big signs. Remember the already, the not yet kind of thing? Well, maybe like as we read these, sometimes it's like, well, maybe that's like, the not yet part. Clearly, we haven't experienced the great and glorious day of the Lord, the day of judgment. However, in the midst of this, there's these signs. But you know, here's a fascinating thing as it talks about this. Anybody remember what happened as Jesus hung on the cross? All three of the Gospels tell us and record what happened. Luke puts it this way. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded, failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There was a dramatic thing that happened as Jesus hung on that cross for three hours. Now listen to this. There's an ancient historian, not a Christian, ancient Greek historian named Phlegon. Here's what he records in one of his ancient histories of Greece named Olympiades. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that is in the, from the time of AD 32 to 83, okay? Interesting, huh? A failure of the sun took place greater than any previously known. And night came on at the sixth hour of the day. Interesting. So that stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew the greater part of Nicaea. What else do we hear about? When Jesus said it is finished. Earthquake. And here's the big idea. Like here's the big takeaway from this passage. Peter is conveying that the Spirit of God has come, like Joel prophesied, like Jeremiah prophesied, like Ezekiel prophesied, that a new day has arrived, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The already is here, and we wait for the not yet. When the Spirit will come in fullness, or when, rather, when the kingdom will come in fullness at the return of Jesus. But in the meantime, it breaks in. We see him active. We get to participate in what he's doing through the Holy Spirit. We continue to be sanctified by him and by the Spirit. And what is it all about? His mission to reclaim the nations. That the gospel will be brought that people would be invited into his family, that more people would know him. You know, my story wrestling with some of this is I've studied scripture and kind of growing up and, um, and wondering, like, God, is this stuff still for today? Do you still 
do stuff like this today? Do you, are you so active and powerful in our lives today? Or was this just all like in the past, you know, with the apostles? And did it all just end? And I remember going off to missions and seeing some really cool stuff and experiencing some stuff and then coming back and really wrestling with it and going, well, God, I'm, I need to know what does Scripture say? We have value here. Biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. That Scripture's our, our, our guide even as we evaluate our experiences like the Bereans, right? And we want to respond to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as I began to come back and really study this, and I remember reading a couple books by a, a guy who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, um, and really like came from a background of not believing any of this stuff really even ha- still happened today, and then reevaluating from Scripture and coming actually to the complete opposite conclusion. And as I studied the arguments and different things, I'm like, you know what? I see some arguments people are making for why maybe this stuff doesn't really happen. But from Scripture, I don't find that. I can't find anything in the New Testament that would lead me to, to think that this was all just for the past. I think the Holy Spirit is alive. He's active. He's working in our midst. You know, um, John Wimber, who founded the network of churches that uh, were affiliated with, uh, made a quote. He, he used to say this. People would ask him, why did Paul say you got to keep B being filled with the Holy Spirit? And he said, it's because we leak. Have you noticed as you go through those like dry seasons where maybe you haven't been drawing near, you haven't been waiting on God, where it seems like there's, there's times in life where it's like, man, the thermostat was up and I've, I've just been sensing his presence actively in my life. Then other times in your life where you're like, God, where are you? I think what he wants to do in our hearts is bring us back to that place where we're looking for him to move on a daily basis. I think, like, the crux of this first part of Peter's message, I mean, he goes on to preach an amazing sermon. Go read the rest at home. And after he does, 3,000 people are saved that day, come into the faith. It's amazing. But it's this verse in 21 that says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That God is still doing the same thing. He was going after the nations, bringing them in, winning people to be part of his family from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all these nations that rebelled against him. The gospel has exploded. We're here as witnesses of that, as evidence of that 2,000 years later on the absolute other side of the globe. He's still in the process, and he has planted you in a place where you are with a circle of influence and friends and family and coworkers, and he's given you a mission. Your life is to be about seeking his kingdom first. You're to be living a life on mission. That your life is to be lived to reach others, to share his love, to share Jesus, to use your business, to use your... um, your position, you're in education or law or whatever you do in a way that it's like it's for you, God. Got to pay the bills, but this thing ultimately is about you. It's for you. You've placed me here. How can my life be used for you? I'm on mission for you. And here's what I've seen and experienced all over is this. 
that if you want to experience God in a deeper way, get on mission with him. So I think as you read through the, the New Testament, what you see is the point of the, of the dramatic, when you see God moving what feels like dramatic ways, sometimes weird ways, um, it's not the thing, it's the mission that he's given. It's communicating his love and his care and his heart for those around. That's the point. If you want to experience more of him, you need to get involved in what he's doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. A great question to begin asking is, God, every day as you go, get up and go through your day, God, what are you doing? Show me what you're doing today and how I can be part of it. And I think as you begin to do that, he is going to show you. Actually, he'll answer that prayer. That's a prayer he loves to answer. And he will give you opportunity. And sometimes it will feel a little intimidating. And you'll have to actually open your mouth and speak and talk about Jesus. You'll have to ask somebody if you can pray with them. Pray with them right there. It's one of the best ways you can experience the presence of God together. Hey, can I pray for you? Let's pray, let's pray about this thing. Not just like, we'll pray later and you forget. Let's pray about this right now. Let's see, because I believe in a God who's life. I think Jesus will work in that situation. Taking that risk that you feel like he's told you to take in an area that you feel like is God-led. Okay. You want to experience his power in a, in a more dramatic way in your life? Get on mission. If you're just distracted, busy, totally caught up in the day in, day out, all we're worried about is binge watching the next season on Netflix, playing a bunch of golf on the weekend, and life becomes very small and about ourselves. And our minds and our hearts are not on the kingdom of God. We're not seeking him first. I don't think you're going to experience his power or presence in your life in a very dramatic way at all. It'd be like a little pilot light. And you're wandering around going, it's cold. Get on mission. Get on mission for him. I had a friend. As I tell the story, Winston's going to come up. Um, one of my good friends growing up. Uh, her dad was uh, one of my youth group leaders, like volunteered and helped. Great guy. Like towed his boat down to Lake Powell and took us water skiing, a bunch of stuff. And I would say, like looking back, I think he would say, he loved God and he followed Jesus and even like served in the church. But I wouldn't say he was super passionate about Jesus in his life. And then he did this crazy thing. He took a missions trip a um, short while after I graduated from high school. And, and he went off and uh, went to Africa, actually. And he, well, he was like doing what he felt like God was calling him to do in Africa. Um, he experienced God's power and presence in a very profound way. And it transformed his life. He had a moment where people were praying for him, and literally, like, he, he ends up on the floor. He's praying all night long. Also on that same trip, uh, he just experienced a profound sense of the, of the Holy Spirit in that moment, that filling. They're in a little church building, two windows in the church. There's a lady there who apparently is like the town on drugs and drunk. Um, she looks like she's 70. And a couple of them gather around, and they begin to pray for this lady. And he says, all, all three of them there heard this and experienced this. There was a wind that came rushing through, just like very similar to what you see in, in, described here. 
And he said it felt like the tiles were going to come off. He had never experienced anything like this, didn't know what to do with this. But, but here's what happened. They prayed for this lady. And two days later, they were back at that church. And he sees this young girl, 27 years old. And they're like, that's the lady we prayed for. God had completely transformed her over a couple of days, completely changed her countenance, and he didn't even recognize her anymore. God did a powerful work. And you know what's amazing? You, you hear a statement, judge something by its fruit. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. But what I saw when he came back is his life was revolutionized. The guy who wasn't really passionate about Jesus or the gospel was using his business to share Jesus like billboard everywhere he went. He was sharing Jesus. He was going through Bible courses. Like that moment and that encounter changed his life in a dramatic way. Get on mission. Would you stand? We're going to close by singing this song. A couple different songs together. And here's my challenge for you. Maybe you're in the room and you're like, there's something in you that longs, like you just feel dry. You long to experience that presence of God in a deeper way in your life. Here's my challenge. This week, every day, would you get up and you say, Lord, show me what you're doing today and how I can be part. And then when he shows you, take the step and obey. And let's see what happens in your life.